Hello, and welcome to the exit presented by Flippa. This is a 30 minute podcast featuring amazing entrepreneurs who have been there and they have done it. We talk to incredible operators who have bought and sold businesses of all different sizes. You'll learn how they did it, why they did it. You'll learn about their background and their origin stories and get exposure to the world of acquisitions. And it's a world occupied by a small few, but accessible to many. And before we dive into my interview here with Katie, definitely be sure to check out the previous interview with Ari Horowitz from Yardline Capital. Very exciting interview about what they're working on uh, with investing. So definitely be sure to check that out wherever you're streaming this or listening to this. Uh, But on today's episode, I'm going to sit down with Katie May, and she founded a company named KidSpot that's fantastic. It's basically a directory helping new moms in Australia and New Zealand. Really a great operator, and she goes through the process of talking about selling to a company called News Corp. They acquired the company a few years back, and after that, she went on to uh, join slash start a company uh, called Shipping Easy that then sold once again to Stamps.com, so two huge exits. And you can Google around and check more out about, uh, you know, KidSpot and the Shipping Easy Company. They're fantastic businesses. And Katie has extensive experience in uh, the world of exits. So she goes through her story, her background, how she started KidSpot and the whole time frame and process of uh, selling that using an investment banker. So without further ado, let's sit down with Katie May on today's episode. All right. I am here with Katie May, both board member and investor. How are you doing today, Katie? Good. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks so much for, for coming on. I'm excited to to learn a little bit about your your background and and your story and and what I guess before we dive into KidSpot and things like that, uh, let's hear your story. Let's hear what your background is and and uh, your origin story. Sure. Um, well, I, we're obviously here to talk about, you know, more of the entrepreneurial side, but I probably had more of a stock standard start. And so we won't go through all the boring things, but just in general, I did work at, you know, some larger firms and companies to start. And so I was a CPA and I worked at Arthur Anderson and then I went back and, um, to graduate school. And then after that, I worked at Philip Morris. That was a big marketing job. And then it was really, then I went into management consulting. So those are all, I would just say, you know, those more traditional routes from, okay, I have a degree. Um, what do I plug it into? And I probably took the easy way out in terms of, you know, you just follow on from who's recruiting at whatever school you're at. Um, but I guess from, from the management consulting role, that's where I met Andrew Bassett, who was one of the founders of seek.com.au. And so that was sort of my first foray into more of the startup world. Um, I would never have considered myself an entrepreneur or a risk taker or someone that, you know, wanted to go out and disrupt industries. Um, but that really gave me a taste. So I would say, you know, that was much more about Matt, Paul and Andrew's journey, and they probably are more of those people, but that gave me a taste of it. And, um, and I spent, you know, six years there all the way through IPO. And then, you know, I founded my own business in KidSpot. And so I guess you could say then I, I moved from being on the executive team of what I would call a real startup culture, um, very entrepreneurial culture, you know, to doing my own thing and building my own team. And, um, and that was a great experience. And then finally, you know, when I left that, I, I, um, I took on another startup and um, that one was here in Austin and was called Shipping Easy and was in the e-commerce space. So I guess my background is a little bit of those traditional, you know, firms and management consulting and, and corporate jobs 
leading to the last 20 years have been much more entrepreneurial in nature. Got it. Got it. And what was that like taking a company public? I mean, obviously you were, you know, with a good core team and you were hands-on and everything like that, but taking Seek uh, public through an IPO, what was that experience like? Well, let me don't overstate my role in that um, because the three founders really did the hard yards in terms of the roadshow because I was, you know, sort of like the chief marketer. Um, My role was much more on the prospective side and, you know, really thinking about, you know, the narrative and how we wanted to tell the Seek story and ensuring that both investors and then eventually, um, you know, shareholders, um, you know, would perceive uh, Seek the way that, you know, we thought about it. And so my job on in the IPO was much more around the narrative, you know, some of the documentation, the press, you know, that sort of thing versus they went out and did the roadshow. So they did a bang up job because it was a really um, successful IPO and I was definitely in the background. Got it. Got it. And when you started KidSpot, what, uh, what were your first initial steps? I think a lot of people listening are, you know, either operating a business currently or they just sold one or they're looking to buy one. And a lot of people are always interested in what the starting process is like for, for somebody that's coming out of a, an IPO company that's, you know, ready to start their own venture. And what was that? What was that like? Did you hire a co-founder? Did you do it on your, on your own? Yeah, I think the first word, just going back to your question, like, what's that like? Um, (laughs) The word difficult or challenging comes to mind. And I'm sure anyone that's listening to this that is trying to get a company off the ground, that will resonate with them because no matter what, it's going to be hard. Um, I did have um, someone that really helped me in the very early days. And then, you know, it transitioned to yet another person. So I absolutely think having a partner is a great thing. So for me, um, you know, coming out of Seek, uh, the initial investor in KidSpot happened to be the chairman of Seek. And so, you know, I guess you could just say I already had an existing relationship. Um, you know, he was incredibly supportive. He understood the space, but also he had access to capital, <laughs> which is really important when you're starting a business. So mm-hmm. it wasn't as stressful for me. I mean, I had the idea and was obviously the CEO and founder, but, um, you know, he could open the doors. And if I could tell the story and get people interested, um, you know, at least I didn't have to do both parts of that. But I did have an initial partner who um, who was my head of inside sales at Seek, and she had left. Um, I didn't poach her, but um, we really started the business together. And then later, you know, there were different partners um, for me. So, you know, my chief commercial officer, her name was Miffy Cody. I mean, she was just instrumental in giving me the confidence to move from what was ever going to be a really small business, because the way I conceived of KidSpot was more of a directory, into this sort of behemoth that was going to have content and a much larger footprint and um, therefore very large advertisers would want to invest with us. And then millions of moms came. So, you know, I, I think that having a partner is fantastic. No matter what your strengths are, you always have a blind side or weaknesses. And, um, you know, I would say ha- having those people next to me, whether it was Irvin Rockman, who was, you know, became the chairman of KidSpot and was really helpful on the capital raising and just general support to, you know, the people I mentioned um, that I worked alongside, you know, they just give you the confidence to keep going. And obviously on those days that you're feeling exceptionally challenged or beaten down, you know, you hope they're in the exact opposite mood and um, can keep you moving forward. So definitely found the people that, um, that I worked with to be instrumental in sticking with it and, you know, just, I guess, persisting and, um, and, and getting through the rough spots. Yeah. Well said. You, you like being in the trenches with somebody else, as I say, yeah. <laughs> on yeah. a everyday basis. So that's a great segue into KidSpot and, and what it is. I, I mentioned right before we started uh, the show that 
you know, I have a newborn baby and I went through last night and read quite a bit on the site and it's really powerful, um, information. So just from a high level, what is, what is KidSpot and what is the, the mission that you started with? Hey guys, Steve here and taking a quick pause from the interview. I know that selling a business can feel unattainable and just out of reach for everybody, but it's definitely something that is very reachable for people that are listening to this podcast with Flippa. And I've mentioned that this show is presented by Flippa. They have over 3 million users on their platform who are looking to acquire everything from content sites to e-commerce stores to SaaS platforms or even mobile applications. So if you're curious and want to know more about what your business is worth, head to flippa.com slash the exit for free valuations on your business. It takes a couple minutes to literally go through and you can just go through the whole process without committing to anything at all. So once again, flippit.com slash the exit, check it out, get evaluation on your business without any commitments and just see exactly what your valuation of your business is worth. So let's dive into the interview. Yeah, so today I would say it's really just a destination for um, new moms, but moms with children of any age up to, you know, I would say 12. Mm -hmm. um, in Australia and New Zealand. So it's very much, you know, not that, you know, how to teach your child to tie a shoe or how to deal with a baby that doesn't sleep. I mean, not that those aren't common and universal across, you know, any geography, but in general, the website was really, um, targeted at, at moms in Australia and New Zealand. And so the early mission was sort of, I think so many things. And again, if there, there's people that are starting businesses or buying businesses, hopefully you have a passion for what you're doing. And for me, I was a new mom. And so like lots of things, you know, the idea was born out of need, but I thought of it as a directory. You know, it was, it, I'd come from Seek, which is a massive database of jobs. It's a lot more than that today. But back in, you know, when I left there in 2005, <laughs> it was much more like it was a massive job website where it was just all about having a ton of jobs and then a ton of job seekers and then helping to match them. And so the way I thought about that as a new mom was, okay, when I need something, so whether that's a clown for a birthday party or a gymnastics class, finding that in those days was impossible because everyone didn't have a website. You didn't just Google it the way you did today. So you have to put yourself back, you know, 15 years ago to get into that headspace. But I really thought of it as a directory where I could find things in my local area that I needed at each age and stage. And then what it grew to be was much more anything you needed as a mom. So whether it was, Hey, I need, you know, a fire engine for a birthday party, or it was, um, something not directory, uh, related. So it was much more on the content side, like it's the middle of the night, you know, my baby has a rash. So the content is just, it's exceptional content written by experts and it is um, very comprehensive. So it's a huge part of KidSpot's mission is no matter what the question, they will have the answer. But then the third part of it was really around community and the fact that, you know, new moms in particular, but moms of any age, when you're tackling or facing something that's new, whether it's your child's being bullied or, you know, you feel like there might be slow developmental concerns or whatever it might be, being able to connect with another mom that has either gone through it or is going through it. KidSpot made that very easy and it had a real community side to it called KidSpot Social. So, you know, overall, it was just this tremendous destination where no matter what you needed in order to, let's say, parent and raise a child, it would be on KidSpot. And then the business model was clearly once we had all the moms, which we really did and they still do, there wasn't an advertiser in Australia that didn't need to be on KidSpot. And that we were really the best way to connect with women who, you know, have all the purchasing power. So it was just this really nice, um, circular, 
uh, you know, successful business model for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's talk about the, the acquisition itself. Uh, KidSpot was a wildly successful acquisition, um, you know, researching it before our, our call today, I was really digging in and, and seeing the, the company News Corp that, that acquired it and just how, how that process happens. I'm always so curious about because I've heard everything from bumping into the acquirer at a coffee shop, you know, and then striking up conversation all the way to, you know, hiring an iBanker and going out and, and actively seeking it out. So what was that, what was that like leading into that acquisition? Yeah. I mean, I guess the first thing that, you know, anyone has to decide is if, you know, if, if they want an exit. And so we had the larger that we got and the more of a household name that KidSpot became more and more of the large media companies in Australia were contacting us. And so it was really like the corporate dev or corp dev departments from those companies would just get in touch. Hey, we want to be on your radar. You know, we would always say like, Hey, you know, we got a mission we're executing, not interested And so, you know, first you need to decide that you actually want to sell or not. Sometimes someone just comes with such a big price or (laughs) something else happens. But for us, we actually made a decision as a board that we felt like Facebook was really starting to encroach on the time that moms had to spend on a site like KidSpot. And we felt like it was a zero sum game. Every minute they gave to Facebook was a minute they weren't giving to us. And so we felt like, look, we built a great business. Um, you know, we had still the vast majority of moms in Australia and New Zealand were visiting the site on, you know, at least a weekly basis, if not daily. So the numbers were very strong. The habits were there. Um, you know, the content was fantastic. And we kind of felt like, look, for us trying to continue to exist as this independent website with no traffic coming, you know, from a larger, you know, I, they used to call them portals. They all have all different names. But, you know, obviously, if we were part of something like news.com.au, which is a huge website that would help us to combat some of the tension and competition we felt from Facebook. So we decided that it was time to exit. And so we did go the more traditional route. We interviewed, um, I don't know, five or six different investment bankers. The board unanimously chose one. So all of us really agreed that David Gordon, who was part of um, an investment banker in Sydney called Lexington Partners, we all agreed that he was the best person to represent KidSpot. And then we just ran a process. And um, that is, <laughs> that's one of two processes. I, I, I did another one after that, but it just went exactly to, you know, to, to the book. And so he said, this is how it would happen. And we would put together this information memorandum, and then we would essentially get these letters of intent. And so he explained how all these things would happen and what the timeline would look like. And honestly, it happened exactly like that. And I only mentioned that because my next one didn't go like that at all. It still was successful, but it was very different. So it doesn't always go to plan. There's lots of curveballs that come as, as part of these processes. But for KidSpot, it really went exactly as the investment banker said it would would go. And then we were lucky enough to have multiple buyers, which caused the tensions, which, you know, always for someone that's selling is better having competitive tension in the process and having multiple people, you you know, you're in most instances, and certainly in this instance, you're going to get a better price. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just, I don't know if I'd call it an easy acquisition as much as it, it went to plan. And then, you know, where we ended up from a, from a price perspective, which, you know, I don't really want to go through, but where we ended up from a price perspective was significantly more um, than we'd said, you know, where we would be willing to sell. Um, And there were really, you know, two people at the end and either of them would have been great acquirers, but we ended up with News Corp and um, that was, you know, a fantastic relationship. And, you know, they continue to invest a ton of resources in KidSpot today. And I've been gone for, 
eight and a half years now. So it was a long time ago and KidSpot continues to be a household name there. So I'm pleased about that. Excellent. Excellent. And that's a, a good segue into timeframes. So from start with the, uh, the amazing investment banker that you guys hired or the board agreed could represent KidSpot, the timeframe from him representing you guys and getting the okay from the board all the way through to you stepping into News Corp. What, what was that time frame? Seven months. Seven months. Got it. Mm-hmm. And then after you were, after the acquisition went through, you know, the, the parties were held, everybody was celebrating. Was there a vesting schedule? Did you have to stay at News Corp for a certain period of time? You know, it's such a good question. And I know there's News Corp absolutely would have had an earnout. Um, but the other bidder for KidSpot, that was one of the, <laughs> the best things that they brought were obviously adding tension to the process. And, you know, the price went up as a result of them also fighting, you know, to to be successful in um, in the acquisition process. But the other thing is um, the other suitor was actually a U.S. based company called Demand Media. And that was really it was founded by entrepreneurs. They had bought several businesses before they you know, put a bid in for KidSpot. And they really said that, hey, they're on the founder side and they don't like earnout. So one of the things that they did in their offer is say, hey, this is all cash, no earnout. Mm-hmm. And so that meant for news in order for them to end up the winning suitor or whatever the words are, um, they had to take their earnout off the table. And they did. So, no, there was no vesting schedule. There was no earnout. It was really you know, it was, everything was just, it was an all cash offer. Um, I did stay for another year and I told them I would stay a minimum of 12 months. And, you know, at the time I lived in Austin, Texas, where I live now, and I commuted for all seven years of that every month. And so a big part of wanting to sell was partly we thought the timing right, but also that I did not want to be traveling every month and away from my own family, you know, seven to nine days every month. And so I had told them when they bought like, hey, for the next 12 months, you have me monthly. I'll continue to do exactly what I've done the last seven years. But after that, <laughs> I am, I'm not going to want to do the same extent of travel. And so I ended up staying just over a year. And then uh, I retreated back to Austin and, um, and stopped the travel. Got it. Got it. Well done. I, I love how the, the bidding between the, the two acquirers led to removing the earnout. That's pretty pretty incredible. I love, love stories like that. So shipping easy. Uh, what, uh, what happened after the acquisition? You stayed there for a year and you, you started a, another company or you jumped on with the company? Yeah. Um, the investment banker that I mentioned, David Gordon, um, he, uh, he actually, you know, we kept in touch. I mean, he did a great job and, you know, really respected him. And I don't know, maybe a year later, a little less than a year, you know, he just said that he had made an investment in this company called Shipping Easy. It was based in Sydney, but they were starting to get traction in the U.S. And, you know, just said, would I be willing to come and talk to the team? Because, you know, apparently they, you know, they thought they had this great product, but they just didn't have as many customers as they would have anticipated at that stage. So they felt like their problem was acquisition and sales and marketing is my background. And so would I just come and spend a Saturday in Sydney with the team? And so obviously one thing led to another. And then I ended up bringing the company and re-headquartering it, I guess you call it, in Austin, and mm-hmm. then took on the CEO role. And then um, I actually did that for, you know, almost eight years. So it ended up to be a much longer play than I expected when mm-hmm. I went to Sydney on that Saturday. Um, but, you know, it, w- it was a it was a great business and it was fun to to build one from scratch in Austin, where I'm from, and to, you know, kind of build out a network here and, and have an experience in the U.S., given I'd spent so much time with Australian companies. Mm-hmm. And, and what was that like when you were building the company? How, how big was it? 
and, and how did you, how quickly did you guys scale it over your time there? We scaled it pretty quick. I mean, the, the business model at Shipping Easy, it's a SaaS um, company. And so people are paying a monthly subscription. It's also shipping. And so there is a transactional revenue stream attached to shipping. And so just call that, you know, almost like a clip the ticket on the vast majority of shipments that go that go through the software. And so, you know, we scaled it quickly. Uh, you know, we got it to about 50 million in ARR. Um, by the time I left. And I guess we sold it after four years to stamps.com, which was a publicly listed company. So that was, you know, there was a couple people moved from Sydney when, when I brought it to Austin and then we just started hiring when I left, you know, there was over a hundred people. And so, you know, it was a pretty sizable company and um, was part of a much larger portfolio and stamps is the market leader in all of, you know, let's just call it um, shipping software. And so, uh, it was a great exit for the shareholders, but more importantly, it was a great exit for the employees because Stamps is, they're just a fantastic parent company. And so I ended up staying for another over three years, about three and a half years after they acquired us, I stayed for just because I wanted to stay because I really enjoyed the leadership team there. And, you know, they led us to continue really just in an entrepreneurial spirit of trying stuff and continuing to grow and write our own strategy and execute, you know, what we wanted really with their backing. So um, that was, that was a really good experience. And um, the company's Austin based. So I, I left there a year ago and I'm obviously in touch with a lot of people that are still there because they're right here in Austin where I am. Um, and, and that company continues to, to grow and the, um, the pandemic, which has been, you know, difficult for all of us, it's been really good for, for shipping companies and for shipping software companies. So um, shipping Easy's had a, a fantastic year, which is great given sometimes when a CEO exits, you know, that can be a little tricky and, and it wasn't tricky at all. It was a great team. And um, the guy that took it over is, uh, is exceptional. So, um, you know, they've gone from strength to strength, which is great to see. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, Austin itself is exploding in growth wise. I mean, I know people that have moved there over the past six to, to 12 months uh, from, you know, San Francisco and LA. A lot of people are, are moving there. It's an, a really, really fun city. So, with the uh, you know shipping easy segment, you've gone through two pretty large scale acquisitions, like very large acquisitions. Uh, you've learned all the intricacies that go into that. If someone listening was about to sell a company, what would you say is one of the most important parts that that you learned after going through? the acquisition uh, to Stamps, to uh, News Media or News Corp, both of these companies, what were you guys kind of um, always referring to? Was it like a standard operating procedure? Was it uh, the burn rate? What were the, what were the really important things that you could share with, with a, a listener that might be getting ready to exit if they're ready for it? Yeah, well, I, I would say, I mean, two different sides to the question. So one side around like what's really important. And so clearly there's, you know, no matter what business you're in, there's a set of metrics that demonstrate something. And so, you know, it's different depending on the industry you're in for someone that's in SaaS, you know, there, there's just a set of metrics that you would be very familiar with like CAC and, you know, lifetime value. And so there's just, there's a series of metrics. And so you obviously want those to be in, in very good shape. So of course, numbers are super important, demonstrating growth, very important. Um, you know, having having an executive leadership team that an acquirer actually thinks is going to stick around and execute on whatever forecast you're selling them in terms of your forward, your forward 12 months or your forward three years or whatever it might be. So I think all those things are important. 
I think, you know, for me, if, if I think back on any of the exits, but more importantly, you know, all of the journeys, we put so much stock. And I know for anyone that's listening that had to put together a business plan, you put so much stock into what your idea is and what the business model is and how you're going to execute it and what numbers and what capital you need and all those things. That, that's just table stakes to me. It's like, well, of course you need a really good idea. Of course you need, you know, a business model that's actually going to lead to profitability or something, you know, of course you need a competitive advantage. So I think all of those things are like, yes, you need a really strong plan. But I, I think, and, and some of this sounds like such a, a cliche, but, you know, it always comes down to the people. And I think the busier you get and whether you're in the first year or you're in your sixth year, you know, where you don't want to spend your time and I never want to spend my time <laughs> is on recruiting. It's such a pain looking through things, preparing for an interview, deciding on what questions, doing the reference checks, whatever it is that's part of your recruitment process, it is painful. And even if you have a recruiter, you still have to be prepared and ask the right questions um, or you never actually know what you're getting. And so I would just say that, you know, all the time we all spend tinkering with our business models and thinking and obsessing over things related to the execution, it always comes down to the people. Mm -hmm. And so again, whether you're, you know, you're looking to exit, I mean, so much of an exit relates to the team that, that the acquiring company will be inheriting. It's if they're just buying your technology, well, then don't worry about what I'm saying. But that, I would say that's the minority of ex acquisitions. And so if it's a more traditional exit that you're looking to do, I would just say, you know, the team will become exceptionally important. So if you don't have a really good number two, if you don't have a leadership team that looks like they can actually take the company to the next level. No one's acquiring for where you are. They're acquiring to where, you know, they think you're shooting for. And there, you know, there should be a, a very strong set of people that are convincing and compelling in those meetings. And so I just feel like I probably did not, I always knew people were important. I don't mean to say I didn't, but the time that you spend recruiting, that you look at your diary and you think, oh my God, this is such a waste of time. I have three interviews today. Mm -hmm. It's actually the best time you can spend. And so if, if I was looking back in time, I'd say, wow, I probably could have learned that lesson earlier and not been so miserable <laughs> looking at my calendar and recognizing that, oh, oh, so-and-so just, you know, is leaving. We're going to have to replace or what have you. So I, I think people are, you know, just as important as everyone says they are. And um, for a CEO or a founder, you know, spending time on, you know, choosing carefully, actually doing those background checks, actually having that next phone call and forcing yourself to do the diligence on people. It is such good time. And then obviously mentoring it and doing all the right things once you hire them. But um, yeah, pe people are way more important than the business plan. Well said, well said. So that leads to our, our finale question that we, we ask everybody. Uh, that was actually, you touched on a few things there, uh, but the, the final question is knowing what you know now, what would you tell Katie, 10 years ago, you know, for personal advice or business advice, what would you tell yourself? Hmm. It would, it would probably, I think the very things that make entrepreneurs very good could lead to this question and maybe not regrets as much as, Ooh, if I had my time again. And so what I would tell my younger self is some things can just wait until tomorrow. I think that successful entrepreneurs tend to be fairly obsessive people. And, you know, I, I'm no exception to that. Like I can be obsessive. I can be compulsive. I can spend an extra three hours at night thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to get through this. I can get up at 4 a.m. I can do all the crazy things that probably lots of the listeners do because they just want to be successful or they just don't want to fail. And both of those are really big drivers for me. The not failing just as important as the being successful. And there really are things that can wait. And so, you know, I, I think it's easy for me to say now, 
because now maybe I, you know, I've recently retired and so my life looks a little bit different, but there are so many things. And now when I work with entrepreneurs, which I do, if not every day, every week, it's like, you know what, that doesn't have to be done today. And so it's not just about patience. It's about saying, you know what, I'm going to decide what's really important each day. And provided I get those things due, some things are going to make it till Monday. I'm not going to do them on Saturday. I think the obsessive nature of an entrepreneur can lead you to feel like everything has to happen today. And I think that the, uh, <laughs> the lack of balance in my life, I'm not sure that it made, you know, these companies more successful. I think it just made me less balanced. So I, I think that's the advice I give my younger self, like stop, realize what's important, get those things done and let some other things, they can just, you know, they can wait. Um, Got it. That's probably it. Got it. Got it. Well, those are all the, the questions I have for you today. It's incredible to sit down and talk to someone so experienced with multiple big exits like this. Uh, but where can people go and, and where do you want to send people to either learn more about what you're working on or what someone else is working on? Yeah, I mean, probably, I mean, I, I don't publish anything, so I'm really not a, a huge public person that's like, oh, please go to my Twitter account. I honestly don't do any of those things. So, so I would say, sure, I'm on LinkedIn and the normal places. Otherwise, I do sit on a few boards and um, I'm quite active, obviously, in all of those. And that probably demonstrates a little bit about where my interests are today. Um, so, yeah, I, I would probably just direct people to my LinkedIn profile, which at least I keep half up to date. But otherwise, yeah, I'm probably more of a, of a private person. <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show, Katie. This was super valuable. And uh, thank you for, for sharing all the journey because you've, you've definitely done a lot with these exits. And a, a lot of people are going to see a lot of value and hear a lot of value from, from what you share. So thanks so much for coming on. Well, great. Thank you. And good luck to all your listeners. <laughs>